What does it look like to be successful in our service for God? What does it look like to be a successful Christian? Or a successful pastor? Or a successful church? When we started looking at 2 Corinthians, we said that this letter would help us begin to answer those questions. It's true that the Apostle Paul had a unique ministry. None of us are apostles in the same way that Paul was. But all of God's people are called to serve him in some way. The New Testament refers to us as servants of God. So we can look at Paul's service and ministry and learn a lot about our own service and ministry, whatever form it might take. And this morning we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up at verse 12, and we'll follow through this morning to chapter 3, verse 5. And in the Church Bible, that's page 1159. So 2 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. This is God's Word. And in this passage, Paul gives us two pictures of success. First of all, God's servants, part of God's victory parade. And second, God's transformed people, a living letter from Christ. We find the first picture in verses 12 to 16. God's servants, part of God's victory parade. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul spoke about his painful visit and his tearful letter to Corinth. He had made a short visit to the church there, And something painful happened during that visit. It may well be that Paul confronted an individual about some sin. 
The individual then publicly attacked Paul, and the church body did nothing. Whatever the exact details, Paul is clear that it was a painful visit. Then Paul left Corinth, and he wrote a tearful letter to the church. In that letter, he urged them to step up and deal with the situation. It seems that Paul had sent his friend Titus to carry the letter to Corinth. And Paul arranged to meet Titus again later to find out how the letter had been received. Apparently, they had agreed to meet up in Troas. That's what's behind verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. That's quite an amazing thing for Paul to say. When he arrived in Troas, he found opportunities for preaching the gospel. That's what he means by the Lord had opened a door for me. That was not always the case for Paul. He often got run out of cities where he tried to preach, but not at Troas. There was an opportunity there, and yet Paul didn't stay. He moved on to Macedonia. And the reason was that he longed for news from Corinth. How had they received his letter? He couldn't settle to this opportunity in Troas because he was so concerned about Corinth. He says, I still had no peace of mind. So he went on to Macedonia hoping to find Titus there and get news from him. This is more evidence of the depth of Paul's love for the Corinthians. Already in this letter, Paul has been very open about his own weakness. He's not Superman. He suffers in his service for God. In chapter 1, he spoke about a situation of suffering in the province of Asia. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired of life. In our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. In chapter 2, he spoke about his great distress and anguish of heart and his many tears over the Corinthians. And now he says that even with a gospel opportunity in Troas, he had no peace of mind. This was not the standard picture of a leader in Paul's day. Leaders were strong and victorious. These kinds of confessions from Paul were fuel for his opponents. They were able to point to Paul's weakness and say, could he really be a true servant of God? If he was, surely he would be above all this. Paul didn't fulfill the standard profile of the servant of God in his day. And it has to be said, he doesn't fulfill the profile many people have today of the servant of God. There's a common idea today, too, that the authentic Christian life is a constant victory march. Real Christians, and certainly Christian leaders, don't suffer distress and anguish. When they're faced with a wall, they walk through it, or maybe they jump over it. They certainly don't ever despair of life. 
Paul doesn't fit the common picture of a successful servant of God. But even as we notice this about Paul, we need to be careful. Because there is a sense in which the Christian life is a victory march. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus was describing a victory march for his church. Even the gates of hell can't halt its progress. In Colossians, Paul himself talks about Jesus triumphing over his enemies by the cross. And later, the risen Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the New Testament does tell us that through Jesus, God has triumphed over his enemies. The victory over the power of sin has been won. God is leading a victory parade. But where we often go wrong is in understanding our part in that victory parade. That's what Paul is going to help us understand. He has been honest about his own weakness. And now he's going to explain how that weakness fits into the bigger picture of God's victory parade. Look what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. When you and I read this, our first reaction might be, how does this fit with what Paul has been saying? How can he go straight from talking about his own weakness to talking about being led in triumphal procession? Well, the answer comes when we understand what a triumphal procession was. When we read this, we might think of the England cricket team on an open-top bus tour, just back from winning the Ashes. I don't think it'll ever be the England football team, but the cricket team now and again. That's our understanding of a triumphal procession. It's a bus full of super fit, super talented heroes, world beaters. But what Paul has in mind is very, very different. When a victorious Roman general returned to Rome, there would be a victory procession through the streets of Rome. Along the route, there would be people burning incense, drawing attention to the parade. And the centerpiece of the procession was the victorious general in his chariot. He would have been holding a scepter and wearing a crown. So far, the picture's not too different from our open-top bus with the England cricket team. But that's as far as the similarity goes. Because aside from the general in his chariot, most of the rest of the procession was made up of trophies of the general's victory. So there would have been gold vessels carried in the procession, sometimes even parts of conquered ships carried through the streets. But the main trophies on display were the general's conquered enemies, his captives. Those were the real trophies on display. 
They were, those were the real display of the general's victory and power. And that is how Paul pictures himself. God is the victorious one. He has triumphed through the cross. It's his victory parade. And Paul is one of the captives shuffling along in the procession. That's what it means to be led in triumphal procession. Of course, in the Roman processions, the captives would have been bitter about their situation. They would have been terrified and full of hatred for the one who had conquered them. But Paul is not like that. At that point, he departs from the illustration that he's using. He says in verse 14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is not a bitter captive. He's a willing one. He's glad to have a part in God's victory parade. He's glad that his own weakness is magnifying God's power. Paul is very thankful to be in this parade. Now, as we think about this, we mustn't push Paul's illustration too far. It's only an illustration. Paul is pointing to himself as the weak, shuffling member of the parade. He's not implying that God is mistreating him. His point is, yes, I'm weak. I suffer a lot. I'm not impressive to many people. But thanks be to God. I'm in his victory parade. I still have a part to play in glorifying him. I think this picture helps us understand our lives as servants of God. Those who were led in triumphal processions were not triumphant themselves. They went along in humiliation. And yet their very presence in the procession pointed to the honor and power of the one who was leading the procession. It's just the same for us. God's victory parade is not made up of many super-fit, super-talented world-beaters. We're weak, most of us. And those who know us and watch us are not likely to think of us as all-conquering people. And that's a good thing. Because this procession that we're part of is not about us. It's about God. It's about Him being glorified, not us. I said a moment ago that the route for a Roman procession was lined with people burning incense. And in verse 14, Paul pictures himself not only as a captive in the procession, he also sees himself as one of those burning incense to draw attention to the procession. He says, through us, God spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Self-confident and self-sufficient people tend to bring glory to themselves, not to God. Strong and powerful and impressive people tend to get admiration for themselves, not for God. But when men and women are weak and know their weakness and give themselves to serve God, he works through them and he receives glory. Their lives spread the fragrance, not of their own greatness, but of God's greatness. 
He's the God who works through even weak people like us. So he must be a great God. Only a great God could accomplish his purposes through me and you. What Paul is saying is that our weakness glorifies our powerful God. Paul has more to say about how God works through us. Look at verse 15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Let's think for a moment about the message that you and I have to share. Our message is that God's power has been shown through a Savior who died on a cross. Now, in Paul's day, a Savior was an appealing idea. But the message of a crucified Savior, a Savior who suffered weakness and humiliation, well, most people find that either offensive or stupid. To the Jews, it was offensive. God would never suffer to save sinful people. To the Greeks, it was a stupid idea. What could be accomplished by dying for the people you're trying to save? In fact, in 1 Corinthians, that's exactly how Paul describes people's response. He says, we preach a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The idea that God would bring salvation through weakness was unacceptable to many people. But to those who would accept it, Paul says it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Only a Savior who died in our place can bring us salvation. And only those who accept that Savior can be saved. We have to humble ourselves to accept the gospel message. It tells us that we're hopelessly lost in sin. We're unable to save ourselves. It tells us that our only hope is a carpenter who died naked on a cross, condemned as a criminal, humiliated before the crowds. If we're too proud to accept this man as our Savior, if we believe we're too good to bow the knee before him, we will not be saved. And here in our passage, Paul takes this truth and he applies it to himself. Paul is weak. He suffers in many ways. He's often looked down on and humiliated. But doesn't that make him the perfect person to share the message of the crucified Savior? Paul is saying that our weakness supports the message of a crucified Savior. I think that's what Paul means when he says we are the aroma of Christ. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking we need a church full of beautiful, successful, talented people. Of course, you are all beautiful in your own way. I realize as I say that I'm <laughs> implying the wrong thing. But we might think that we have more of an impact if we had a church full of even more beautiful and successful and talented people. We would be more attractive to the world around us. 
And sure, we might be more attractive, but we would be more attractive for the wrong reasons. We would be attracting people to ourselves, making them think we had something to offer them. But when broken and weak people share the message of the gospel, we are pointing to God's power, not our own slickness or skills. Because it's obvious to people that we don't have those things. Of course, that doesn't mean that everyone will accept the message. Look again how Paul puts it in verse 15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. For Paul, there are only two kinds of people, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And men and women show what kind of people they are by their response to the message of Jesus. And here Paul points to the part we play in this. When weak people like us share the message of Jesus, those who are perishing are going to look down their nose at us. They will reject us and our message as well. Their attitude will be, look at those people. They're unimpressive. They're awkward. Very few of them have risen to any kind of position in this world. I wouldn't lower myself to associate with them or with the message that they're bringing. To those people, our lives and our message are the smell of death. They go away confirmed in their rebellion and their self-sufficiency. They go on dying without Christ. But on the other hand, when those who are being saved look at us, they see weak, needy sinners just like themselves. They see people who don't have it in them to soar above every problem and difficulty. And then, as they hear us praising God and pointing to God's power, they're ready to hear what we have to say. To those people, our lives and our message are the fragrance of life. They will come and find life in the God who accepts and sustains weak, needy people. So as Christians, we should never be embarrassed to admit our own weakness and frailty. And please don't misunderstand, that does not mean we should glory in our sin. We're called to fight against our sin. We're not to be comfortable with disobedience in our lives. So the point here is not that sin is okay. The point is that when we suffer hardships and distress, when we seem to be nothing in the eyes of the world around us, we shouldn't see that as a failure. We shouldn't imagine that that makes us useless to God. It turns out we're exactly the kind of people God chooses to work through. Paul moves on to a second picture. And it's prompted by his question at the end of verse 16. Who is equal to such a task? The sense of that seems to be what kind of evidence should you look for? How do you discern when someone is being used as part of God's victory parade And how do you know when they're actually 
conducting their own little victory parade. And to answer this question, Paul describes God's transformed people, a living letter from Christ. He sets up the picture by saying in verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Paul was not against gospel workers being supported financially. In 1 Corinthians, he said, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But what he's talking about here is using the gospel as a means for financial profit. The word peddle was a word from the marketplace, and it carried the ideas of shady dealing, trickery, and greed as a motivation. Some of Paul's opponents took a similar approach when it came to serving God. It was just a means of profit. Their real motive in it all was financial gain. And so they were willing to mess around with the message if that would increase their financial gain. But Paul contrasts that with his own approach. He speaks with sincerity. What that meant in practice was that when Paul was in a new area, he often worked to support himself. Or he would maybe accept support from some other well-established church. And he worked that way to avoid giving the impression that he was a peddler of the gospel. In fact, that's what he'd done when he was first planting the church in Corinth. He worked as a tent maker during that visit. He was determined to offer the gospel free of charge. But even as Paul is saying this, he knows what his opponents will say. And he knows what they'll say because apparently they have accused him of this before. Paul's just trying to get approval for himself. He's just playing a game himself of self-commendation. And so Paul responds in chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Letters of recommendation were used very commonly in Paul's day. They were used in the church, too. If you were traveling to another part of the country, and if I knew a pastor of a church in that place, I might give you a letter of recommendation saying that you were trustworthy. Then you could present that to the pastor of the church, and he would welcome you and arrange hospitality and so on. It was a common thing to do. In fact, Paul himself often wrote those kind of letters for people. So Paul was not opposed to the use of letters of recommendation. But he says that in this situation, he doesn't need one. Why? Because, in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul mentions our letter, singular. So he's referring to the whole church body as a letter. 
The transformed lives of these men and women are the only letter of recommendation Paul needs. They are a living letter. The existence of changed men and women in Corinth proves that God has used Paul. Despite all of Paul's weakness and humiliation, through him, God has spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God. Paul's life has given something of the aroma of Christ. And the Corinthian believers are proof of that. Now, in one sense, it's remarkable for Paul to say this. As we know, the Corinthians were not exactly shining examples of purity and holiness. And yet, among that residue of sin, Paul sees the marks of God's grace. The Corinthians were certainly not the finished article, but they are not what they used to be. There is evidence of God's transforming work. And that's a better letter of recommendation for Paul than any handwritten letter. In verse 2, Paul says the Corinthians are a letter written on our hearts and known and read by everybody. So far in this letter, Paul is usually referred to himself as us or we. So written on our hearts means written on Paul's heart. We said last week, Paul doesn't see himself as a manager of a religious business. He's invested in these people. They're on his heart. But in fact, anyone who cares to look can see the signs of change in these people. This is not just Paul's private, indulgent opinion. It's obvious to anyone who knows the Corinthians. They are a living letter, known and read by everybody. Yes, they have a long way to go, but God has also brought them a long way. And Paul makes it clear in verse 3, it was not Paul who brought the change. The church body is a letter from Christ. And he says the letter is written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Ink can fade. It can wash off and be erased. But Christ writes in human lives by his Spirit. And that writing never fades or gets erased. In our Christian service, true success is not connected to how many people know about us. It's not connected to the numbers who show up for our services or our events. It's not based on our human reputation. It's based on the lives God has transformed through our service. Those lives make up a letter of recommendation that can never be destroyed. At the end of verse 3, Paul points back to the Old Testament. You remember that the book of Exodus records God giving his law to Moses. We're told when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. God made his will known through that law written on the tablets. 
The trouble was, as the Old Testament went on, it was clear that the Israelites couldn't or wouldn't keep God's law. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised to write his law on their hearts. That's exactly what's happening through Paul's ministry. For all their waywardness, the Corinthians are men and women who love God. And they are being enabled to obey him and please him in their lives. As Paul ministers and serves, God has been using him to write his law on people's hearts. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to those who scoff and look down on him, that's all the recommendation I need. These men and women are living, breathing proof that God is at work. For all my weakness, Paul says, he has used me as part of his work. Verse 4. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Not many of us here this morning would consider ourselves to be strong. Most of us are very aware how limited we are. We might not feel that we can do very much. We might feel that our attempts to witness usually fall flat. But we don't have to be strong to be in God's victory parade. When weak men and women make themselves available to God, when we seek his glory instead of our own, then God will use us to make himself known. As we serve together and as we do what we can, Jesus is writing a living letter. By his Spirit, he is changing men and women, not overnight and not in thousands or even hundreds. But every one of us here who belongs to Jesus is part of a living letter. We are a testimony to how God uses the service of weak people to bring change and growth in the lives of other people. So don't be discouraged by your own weakness. Keep serving God. Look for opportunities to point people to him. And he will use you. We're going to respond to God's word with two songs this morning. The first one picks up on the message